Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 237 of Yoga Land. Hi, Jason. Hi, Ginger. I, I can only say hi for me, but I assume she says hi. She's I mean, she's so looking incredibly fetching right now. Oh my God. There's like, Just wait till this is a video podcast. There's a tail thump. Yeah. There's a offering of the belly. There's yeah. look, looking down with those big really positive, bedroom eyes. Positive social behavior. Oh my gosh. She's so adorable. Okay. So we are going to talk about common sequencing challenges today. But first, we'll just say that your online continuing ed sequencing program is open for registration. It is open for registration. And you can go to jasonyoga.com slash sequencing to get all the details and sign up if you're interested in signing up. And mm -hmm. it's the best one. Of what? Of my online trainings. Not like besides your besides besides hour. the really long one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of a continuing ed, because I just don't think there's anything more important than sequencing. Mm. I, I mean, obviously, in life there are things more important <laughs> than sequencing. Don't get me wrong. You guys, he's just all day long sequencing, sequencing, just, sequencing. Just Andrea, I love you, and two. I also love sequencing. Side angle pose. Ooh, it gets him so excited. No, it's just again. I was saying this in the last conversation we have. It's where we execute our craft. It's where we orchestrate our content in a workflow that is designed to teach our students what we want to teach them. Yeah. And it's just, it's one of these things that can have, uh, can benefit from perpetual refinement. And that's in a way our inroad right now, which is- Oh, wait, no. There's something else I have to talk about before we talk about this. Okay. It's it's definitely a veering off from this conversation. So can you hold that in your mind, in your little ADHD mind? Uh, Do you want to write it down? I, no, it's going to go away, <laughs> but it'll bounce back. I'll have 170 other thoughts between now and then. Okay. Go. Did you know that when you and Sophia were away like two weeks ago, and I'm not getting paid to talk about this PS, I just want to talk about her because I adore her that I did an astrology reading with Susanna Friedman. I did not. So Susanna, for those of you who don't know, she's a yoga teacher in San Francisco. She and Jason have been colleagues, and she's also done your training. And she is like a lifelong astrologer. Like she, Her stepmom is an astrologer, and so she does readings. She's a super groovy lady. And I just took the opportunity while the two of you were away to say, hey, what would I like? Really, I sat down and I was like, what do I want to do for my self-care? I want to go out to dinner with someone. Did that with Emily. I want to have one or two conversation, podcast planning conversations. Did that with Melissa McLaughlin. That's coming up. It's going to be so good. Want to do a reading with Susanna. She's also been on the podcast, by the way. I, I wish I looked up the episode number. I'll put it on the show notes. You should have had that reading before you bothered to marry me. Because then she, maybe she could have advised you against a skeptical Virgo. Well, during the reading, at the end of the reading, she did ask when your birthday and she's was. She's a Virgo. Yeah. She's a Virgo. And yeah. when you were born, at uh, what time you were born, and I didn't know what time you were did born. Did you tell her I was timeless? And that, she that said- I only refer to the Purusha component of self. I said, I said, I'm ignoring you because what I have to say is more interesting for once. Doubt it. I said, I can find out when he, what time he was born. And she's like, Andrea, I can't do that. I need his permission to look at his chart. Oh, and I was yeah, like, that's so permission. ethical of you yeah. because she's dying to look at your chart. 
But I just want to, if anybody's interested, ever been interested in this, and I am actually not very woo-woo. I don't do things like this ever. I don't do energy. I just, it's just not quite my thing, but, but she is my thing. And what's really fun about it is that she looks at your chart ahead of time. And then what we did was I've done a general overview sort of birth chart reading with her before, but this one was sort of more to talk about what's happening in my chart right now. Like, where are my transits? Where am I this, my Mm -hmm. that? And so she said, it's really important for me right now to make sure my physical routine is very solid. As opposed to other times when physical routines and health don't matter. Are you going to doubt the stars? <laughs> yes. Okay, stop. Okay, go ahead. That's, that's not the time I for know, this. I know. You know I'm the fun counterpoint. Ugh, not super fun all the time. Anyway, and I have to possibly think about getting rid of the Virgo in my life. Yeah, that's not a bad yeah, idea. That's where we're going to end this conversation because yeah. you kind of ruined it. Yeah. So we're going to stop right so there. So suitors. Get ready. I'm wearing a crop top and bicycle shorts right now. Okay. That is true, actually. That is true. No, I'll put it this way. If hell was slowly freezing over and I was going to get my chart read, 100,000% I would get it read by Susanna. Well, you know what? If you're willing to give me your time of birth, then you're going to get it read whether you like it or not. I think it's evening. I think it's like I'm going to ask your mom. Oh, you think my mom knows? Yeah, your mother remembers. I. Your mother told me the whole My story of your birth. My mom has some strange memories. The story of your birth was not very strange. Okay, it was very enough. like, you know, it was very much of the time. You know, she got an epidural. She had a headache. You came out, blah, blah, blah. She knows that story. You know, almost every time I'm highly dismissive of something outright, I'm proven wrong. That's true. So I, I know this, <laughs> but I still enjoy the, take this as like sport. The contrarian. More sport than sincerity. I, I live in a family of contrarians. It's well, it's it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Okay. So, you know that I often say, I said to the hairdresser yesterday, now I sound like a total, like, I don't know what. Lunatic. But I said to the hairdresser yesterday that my daughter is almost as tall as me. Not saying much because I'm 5'1", but she's in fourth grade and she's nine and she has four inches until she's as tall as me. 95th percentile for height, like 30th percentile for weight, just like her dad. I said, she is 98.9% her dad. If I had not carried her, I would not believe she was mine. Well, where that is not true is there's she has many features that look like you. Yeah, she she has the hair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as high of a stress load person as I am. Yeah. You know, let's pick on me a little bit. You I've been know, on you. oh, no, you're a rarefied just I'm a piece gem. of art. I am a gem at the Smithsonian. I am. I mean, my piece of glass. Venus is my ruling planet. Okay, that's what you. we're we're gonna loop it back around. Do you think anyone is still listening? I don't know. I'm sorry, you guys. I really was just gonna have a nice, pleasant little plug for my dear friend. No, Susanna's great, and, and talented I see that, friend Susanna. I say that from a very skeptical point of view. Yeah. Um, also, she's just so intelligent and she's like comforting and she's got this incredible knowledge of astrology because yeah. of her stepmom and her own study. And she is, I don't know, she's just a fascinating person. She's also kind of a, I don't want to say in spite, I don't want to say, I don't want to come across saying this wrong. Um, so, so even though, oh God, I can't, I can't no, say it okay. in a way. Okay. Um, 
She's also a very no BS kind of person. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So yeah. I don't, but I don't mean to say that, th- but except for, you know what I no, mean? But like, it's... I'm saying I'm very skeptical about these things, but I think that like I was saying, if I were going to do this. Which mm, now you're going to. Well, I mean, <laughs> I started doing yoga. True. Much against my will. Yes. True. Very strongly against true. my will. Yeah. So there are these sequencing issues. Okay. I'm going to take a deep breath. And what I want to kick off about sequencing issues is there are some really common challenges or really common obstacles to good and comprehensive sequencing. There aren't just obstacles and challenges. I've really organized them into four categories Mm -hmm. of sequencing issues or problems or challenges or things that we need to reconsider and overcome. And what I want to do is I want the audience to hear me say that that every critique that I'm going to make is a critique of me in my past. I'm really not pointing at any other, the way other people do things. Got it. Okay. Really what I'm doing is kind of saying a little bit like in the last podcast, like what have I learned over a couple of decades of doing this? And so when I look at myself in the rear view mirror and how I've grown and evolved on everything except for being open to astrology, uh, I'm kind of open to it. Um, anyways, I, I can step back and say there are really four categories of things that I've gotten much better at and that I now see in the rear view mirror as obstacles or challenges or problems. I never really even know how to phrase it, right? Sure. Um, but the first category are the physical imbalances. There's actually a lot of physical imbalances that are built in to contemporary yoga sequencing, including vinyasa yoga sequencing. So I'll kind of limit it to vinyasa-based because I feel like I can more comfortably be a critic of my own home, right? The second big category that I see is lack of consistency. And now I'm going to be brief when we talk about lack of consistency as like a category of problems with sequencing because... We're going to have one more episode in this little kind of three-part series, if you will, where we're focusing on sequencing, where we really talk about the importance of greater consistency. The third big category that I see, which is related to the second category, is student turnover challenges. Mm, yeah. so actually, to me, I see it in part as a sequencing issue. It's not only a sequencing issue. There's countless reasons people turn over. Most of them have nothing to do with the teacher or the relationship. It's just time and circumstance and place. But I think that our lack of consistency and our lack of identified teaching goals over time turns students over more quickly. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And then the final thing is teachers just typically have a really limited exposure to sequencing education. Mm-hmm. I think back of what I was able to learn about sequencing in the 1,000-hour program that I did, and the answer is not much. Mm -hmm. So mostly what I learned about sequencing through those trainings and spending time with Rodney wasn't, wasn't by way of him or any of my teachers spelling it out for me. It was watching how they do it. But in 200 hour trainings, I don't care how good the 200-hour training is. It can be my upcoming 200-hour training. 200 hours is just such little time to give all of your students, all your teachers a baseline. 
So I'm not even saying I'm not even saying like oh the sequencing education out there is bad. No, 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 no. It's, it's more just saying about like it's the just limited. It's just a- limited exposure. Yeah. And it really is the equivalent of becoming like going from being a musician that learns how to play other people's songs to being a musician that writes your own songs. Mm-hmm. Right? So the limited exposure to a lot of the sequencing is such that Many people learn to memorize a sequence or two, which can be really helpful. I don't disparage that in the least. But learning to play someone else's song, learning to memorize and teach a sequence is remarkably different from creating your own. So those are really the four categories. Well, you can go back to any of and all of them, but physical imbalances, lack of consistency, student turnover, and lack of exposure to comprehensive sequencing education. Okay, so before we dive into those four different points, uh, I want to just, because you brought something up that's really important, and that is memorized sequences. And I think that you've kind of changed your point of view about this over the years, in that now you really think it's super helpful to give people several sort of classic foundational sequences to memorize until you're ready to venture out and 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 like wing it and not wing it but you know write your own song create your own sequences so am i correct in that you are completely correct in that okay i i think i was a little both naive and arrogant Mm -hmm. because i think sometimes i forget that two things can be true at the same time Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so i don't want someone's sequencing education to be limited to memorization Mm mm-hmm but I think for a period of time, I thought if you are learning sequencing by memorizing someone else's sequencing, then that's going to hold you back. And then, you know, we're all playing the same song. And that song was written a long time ago. And from what I can see, that song is only okay anyways. Yeah. Do you know, you know, so, but now through time and experience and my incredible wisdom over the years, I see, oh, it's really helpful to have memorized sequences because that's going to help you as a yoga teacher early on not have to worry about sequencing while you're learning to give verbal cues, while you're learning to keep time, while you're learning to have the guts and whatever it takes to stand in front of a group of people for 60 minutes or more at a time. So I think that learning sequences, memorizing sequences, but then also learning and memorizing sequencing templates and then also learning how to develop your own content and mm-hmm. put it into those templates. Mm-hmm. I think that that's the way to go. I mean, it'll keep it more interesting for you as a teacher, more challenging, and then more obviously more interesting for your students. Yeah. And one of the things I've talked about a lot, let's just let's just stay with this topic to start. Okay. So, so this is kind of category four, but we'll start with it, right? Oh, okay. Yep. I have been reflecting a lot as we've been developing content for this season, and I've just finished up these intensive 300-hour trainings, right? So my mind is really in, when I teach teachers, I reflect on myself, especially in my earlier development as a teacher, right? And so one of the things I've been reflecting on is that I practiced and taught Ashtanga yoga for a period of time, and obviously in many ways have moved on for many reasons, but... I don't disparage some of the really valuable things I learned from that practice. 
And when it comes to sequencing, I realize for the first two years of teaching yoga, I didn't have to sequence. I didn't have to sequence at all. I taught primary series. Oh, right, right, right. So I didn't sequence mm -hmm. at all. Right. I didn't have to figure that out. So it's kind of like the first two years of being an onstage musician, not having to write a single new piece of music. So there's a, there's a little bit of a downside to it, which is it can lack creativity. It can lack evolution. But do you really want to do that in the first or second year of teaching anyways? So my point is, I feel like I was really fortunate to teach a sequence, not sequence for the first couple of years, especially with my personality. It helped me learn how to be much more comfortable in front of a group. Right. There's so much that's going on so when much. you're in front of a group talking for that long, watching their bodies, watching their responses, listening to your own voice. I think it would have helped me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. few sequences to just to do yeah. when I was first teaching. So whether it's like Ashtanga or Baptiste or hot yoga or Bikram yoga or whatever these or things. Or your teacher just put together a few for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or yeah, that's what I do in my 200 hour training. There's five. Mm -hmm. I have five essential sequences that are all about 60 minutes. But the point on that is, yes, you are correct that at a phase of my life, I didn't, I didn't want to pass on memorized sequences. In part, going back to our podcast a couple of weeks ago, is I don't want to mostly train people to memorize me. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's just mm -hmm. educationally, it's not, it's not my primary interest. I don't, uh, as a teacher, I don't want you to know just what I know, I want you to learn what you know. Mm -hmm. And if you're just teaching a sequence that I made up last year, then, or a sequence that was written on a so-called banana leaf 5,000 years ago, then there's some value to it, but you're gonna, in that point, you're going to lack a certain amount of creative depth. Right. But I see it as a really valuable early phase. You're laughing about that banana leaf <laughs> thing. So called banana leaf. You are <laughs> oh, it's such a hard oh, story to buy. I know, but you know, we all love mythology. Or, exactly, we all love mythology exactly. and story, and that's part of that. And also, I don't know. I thought we. I was thinking in the car today. Gosh, we could do a whole story, a, a whole podcast about sort of mythology, and not just like. The, the the sequence was found on a banana leaf, but that there's just so much mythology in the yoga tradition slash community about adeptness. Yeah. And that's not to say there are not people who are adept. There are. But I feel like everyday teachers were represent, representing themselves to me over the years when I was at Yoga Journal as ha not having these issues that like all of us have. And at this point in my life, I just find that so absurd. But that's a whole other yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other topic. Also, for those those people that know what I'm referring to with the 5,000-year-old banana leaf, that's part of the origin story of Ashtanga yoga, yeah. right? But let me say this. I want to say this because that just seems like I was being a little negative, but I that's just how I am sometimes. If you think about like classic songs, like classic rock, classic whatever it is, you go back and something has stood up for a long period of time. You're like, man, this is old. And it has stood the test of time. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean it's the only song, but it has stood the test of time. And I do honestly think about that with the Ashtanga sequences. Mm -hmm. 
Do I think that there are these infallible, perfect things that could never evolve? No. Do I think that in and of themselves, they've stood a test of time and they're pretty remarkably interesting? Yeah. And before their time in a progressive way? Yeah. Yeah. It's they, a they hold up in really interesting ways. If you have the right if you have the right body type and personality and karma for that discipline, they they hold up in really reasonable and if, ways. And if you want to do a 45 minute or 40 minute home practice of just sort of vigorous standing poses, you do the primary series up until seated and you're you're good to go. So I'm with you on that. So let, let's wrap up this category, okay. the limited exposure to sequencing. So I think the most limited exposure that we have to sequencing is limited exposure to the concepts that underscore sound, progressive, comprehensive sequencing. It's a, it's a lack of understanding of the concepts that underscore it. Mm -hmm. Why you could choose to do this pose before that pose. Most students don't lack exposure to some decent sequences to learn and teach, right? Mm -hmm. But most people really lack an understanding of what templates exist. They lack- Well, what, it's more like the why It's the why. The, yeah. yeah. So it's not that people lack it's the access, accessibility to, or access to what to do. It's, it's the what's informing why you do that. Right. Yeah. It's like, so for a simple example, right? If someone isn't inverting- if headstand is being given as an option, but you're not going upside down, what are your options for that? You have a bunch of different options for that depending on what you're trying to replace, right? So just as a really simple thing, like let's say everyone's doing headstand and I say, okay, everyone, those of you not going upside down, well, I'm going to give them five or six different options and those different options are grounded in a why. So one of those options can be, okay, those of you not going upside down, if you just don't know the posture, then come over here and let me show you the basic setup. That's option one. Option two, to replace the inversion with a longer sustained, uh, we'll, we'll take a longer sustained forward fold with the head supported. So wide-legged standing forward fold with the head on a block or the floor. Option three, to replace the inversion with a strong action of the shoulders and a longer period of time upside down, downward facing dog with the head on a block. Final option, after this headstand, if you don't wanna do any of those things, after headstand, we are gonna move into a progression of backbends. So right now, I want you to take a simple supported backbend over a rolled blanket or a bolster. So again, that's like, it's a really tiny example of saying, if you understand why something is somewhere in a sequence, then you can tailor it much more comprehensively and skillfully for all of your students. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the first one, which is the biggest category. And I think, I think the most tangible, mm -hmm. physical imbalances. So when you say that, you mean that typical, you don't mean like we have physical imbalances in our body. You mean- Oftentimes in yoga, sequencing is imbalanced. It is completely imbalanced. Okay. 
And it's, and so this is like, this is one of those things that's very difficult to be objective about and look at. And we don't like it when other people do it. Like if someone was just like, only did CrossFit and they looked at yoga and they're like, oh, you just stretch your body and you know, you breathe and you don't create any pull strength. I'd be like, look, that's kind of not true. I understand why you think that, but blah, 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 blah. Right. So it's difficult when someone outside of your house is a little bit critical of your house. Sure. But inside your house, and we are inside our house. Any yoga school or discipline that somehow thinks they don't have certain endemic imbalances is wrong. They're oblivious and wrong. I guarantee it. So we are not going to be oblivious and wrong about this. There are really three primary physical imbalances that are extremely common across sequencing, especially vinyasa-based sequencing. Number one, there tends to be an extreme amount of disproportionality between how much we forward bend and how much we back bend. Or another way of thinking about it is we have an extremely imbalanced ratio between hip flexion and hip extension, between spinal flexion and spinal extension, and between shoulder flexion and shoulder extension. Mm. It's, it's like, it's, it, the math is really not good. So the example that I give all the time on this is just Surya Namaskar A, mm -hmm. right? So I'll kind of walk people briefly through Surya Namaskar A, right? So say you're standing in Tadasana or Samastitya, you inhale, you reach the arms up, there you go. You exhale, you forward fold. So now you've taken that first forward fold. So now your hips are in flexion and your spine is in flexion. Let's just make it simple and we'll say that's one forward bend, right? So then you inhale, lift halfway up. That's Ardha Uttanasana. Your hips are still in flexion. It's still mostly a back bend. Excuse me. It's still mostly a forward bend. Right. So that's two forward bends. Okay to zero back bends. Then you have your chaturanga, then you have your up dog. So in up dog, your hips and your spine are in extension or in a back bend. So that's a two to one ratio. We're looking a little better. Okay. Then we're back in downward facing dog. It's another hip flexion pose. Mm -hmm. Three to one. You hop forward, you land in a standing forward fold, you inhale, lift halfway up, that's a forward bend. You exhale, forward fold, that's another forward bend. You come all the way up to standing. So in Sri Namaskar A alone, it's a five to one ratio between hip flexion and hip extension. In our daily lives, we have an extreme imbalance of hip flexion compared to hip extension. Unless you're Sophia Rose Crandall. Unless you're Sophia Rose Crandall. Who is obsessed with, with backbends right now. Absolutely. So when you look at the template, when you look at the structure, or you look at the go-to archetypal patterns of movement in vinyasa-based yoga, they are heavily skewed towards forward flexion. Does that mean they're wrong? No. It means they're disproportionate. Can we do things about it? Yeah, there's tons of things we can do about it. So that's the first thing that to me, that's the first gap that we need to bridge is to start to say to ourselves, there's so much forward flexion, especially the hip. How can I start to get many more hip extension postures, right? 
How can I do more lunges, more spinal extensions, more leg extensions, more strengthening of that posterior chain, right? So second imbalance, which is extremely related to that, right? Which is there tends to be repetitive stressors that are associated with those imbalanced patterns of movement, Mm. okay? Stress is a good thing, but we have to diversify our stresses. Can I guess what they are? Sure. Sacral stress? Sacral stress. Hamstring tendon? Hamstring tendon. Lumbar spine. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then part of the shoulder, but let's skip that because it's less obvious. Okay. Okay. It should come as no surprise that one of the more common types of injuries that we have in all of yoga, but especially vinyasa-based yoga, is hamstring attachment injuries, lower back injuries, sacroiliac joint instability injuries. Now, should I say all of those things are coming from doing too many forward bends? I probably shouldn't say that. Yeah. At the same time, it's pretty clear that yoga is not a sport at all, but all sports and all conditioned patterns of movement have certain stresses that they repeat more than other stresses. Mm -hmm. And we repeat the stress of tension on the backside of the body and compression on the front side of the body, especially the front of the hip, a lot. So I'm not now saying those are bad things. I'm saying they're obviously and honestly disproportionate. So how do we develop sequences that are more balanced? It's straightforward. Like I have to, we have to solve that issue. Right. We have to solve the issue of an excessive amount of repetitive stress. We have to solve the issue of imbalanced ratios between forward flexion and spinal extension. And then really the final one is, I and I think this is less, I shouldn't say less vinyasa yoga. Th- those other two are, I, I would say as, they're all styles of yoga, but especially vinyasa yoga. This final one, I don't think vinyasa yoga is any more imbalanced than most other disciplines. But there tends to be, it's changing a little bit here and there, but there tends to be a much bigger priority and emphasis placed on increasing passive range of motion than on creating active range of motion and stabilization. It's just so built inside the yoga culture that we're focused on using leverage to make body parts go further. You know what I mean? Like we've just, that's that's a lot of the postural evolution and those aren't always bad things. Oftentimes those are really valuable, nice, good things. We're not talking right now about whether they're good or bad. We're talking about, is there, do we have a culture of equity there? Do we mm-hmm. have a culture of balance? And the answer is not even close. There's way more cultural emphasis on using leverage to increase our range of motion, which is passive flexibility. Then there is creating strength and stability and active range of motion and postures. Mm -hmm. And that is a physical imbalance Mm -hmm. without a doubt. Right. So let's talk about why that's, that can be negative physically. Cause we, we've talked, we've had this conversation in several different ways. And I think one of the reasons, not the only reason that there's this overemphasis on passive 
stretching. But I think one of the reasons is that it's associated with calming the nervous system. It, and right. it does. It actually does. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a really good thing. So right. passive so we don't flexibility. Forget about that. Totally. Yeah. So again, I, I want to be really clear. We're talking about proportion. Uh-huh. We're talking about the ratio. So let, let's just put it into the category of good stuff. Let's say all of these things are good things. Mm-hmm. Passive range of motion, active range of motion, strength, stabilization the different phases of strength, whether it's eccentric, concentric, isometric. Let's say all of those are good things. And let's even say all of those are equally good things, mm-hmm. which mechanically they're probably not. But let's say they're mechanically equally valuable things. Great. Then how can we set up a sequencing methodology where you don't have an excess of one of those things and an insufficient amount of others of those things? Insufficient amount. Yeah. Insufficient, okay. right? So to me, it's it's a proportions issue. Right. Right? It's that, and I've said this for a long time, which is I don't feel comfortable helping you develop more range of motion if I'm not simultaneously building you the strength to sustain and control that range of motion. Hmm. That doesn't mean that I don't feel comfortable teaching you passive stretching. I do. Passive stretching is really valuable for most people and most nervous systems, for sure. It's mm-hmm. not something that should be taken off. Even when we talked to Bernie about yin, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, and yin is obviously so much more than passive stretching. I'm not making that yes. association. But my my point is, as it relates to this conversation now, it's about using a modality that simultaneously builds people's range of motion but also brings their builds their strength and their stability within those ranges of motion. It's not an either or thing, mm-hmm. but it's saying if I have 10 of this in a sequence and like zero of the other thing in the sequence, how am I going to call that balanced? Right? Right. As a vinyasa teacher. Yep. You know what I mean? So, if you were doing more specialized work, whether it's yin, whether it's restorative, whether it's a different modality, yes. then you're going to use the techniques that are highly adapted towards that modality. And you're not going to worry about right. things that, right? It's like, I've given the example, if I was a running coach, right? If I was a running coach, I wouldn't care if your hips got a little tight, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they got too tight and you lost range in your gait, that's a problem. But like, I'm a running coach. Mm-hmm. Why would I spend equal amount of time trying to teach you to strengthen your shoulders and lengthen this or that? I'm I'm a I'm a running coach. I'm a sprinter. I don't want a ton of range. So it's not like I would be a bad running coach or a bad person if I was specializing my technique to help you develop that capacity. But I'm a yoga teacher. And yoga's as a especially vinyasa yoga is highly rooted at least in the belief of developing equanimity throughout the body, Mm -hmm. which means if the body has physical characteristics and I help you train some of those characteristics, I think it's actually my obligation to help you with the other characteristics. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yep. I think it's also worth noting, like, because I'm the one who brought up passive stretching can calm the nervous system. Ultimately, throughout your day, so can, you know, active strengthening totally because it's grounding and it's it can help you feel more integrated and 
more balanced. Yeah, I think we will have to have a big tent. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think especially with you and me, there's one thing that both you and I, I can say to our public, whether it's yoga or mental health or medicine or wellness, we don't take anything off the table mm -hmm. yeah. as a potential mechanism to help. Right. So I want to make it really clear. I'm a complete advocate for passive range of motion and passive flexibility, but not really in the absence of things that complement those features. Yeah. Right? Those are the really big physical challenges. So what I find myself a lot of times is realizing, oh, I have been focusing a lot on passive range. Okay, that's okay. Passive range is good. So now in these sequences, I got to give you a little bit more active range. I got to give you a little bit more end range. I got to give you a little bit more strength, right? I got to teach you not just how you can go really far in your back bend, but how you can stabilize some of that loose stuff in your back bend. I also have to figure out, hey, the sequences that I teach, we do a ton of downward facing dog. We do a ton of Surya Namaskar. That has a lot of forward flexion. So now how do I sneak more and more and more and more extension in, right? How do I not see a challenge or an obstacle and then say, oh, well, this thing is junk. Oh, we need to get rid of this. Vinyasa yoga is bad. But say, oh, no, no, no. This thing is magical and amazing. So here are some small tweaks here and there in order to make it more effective. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now second category, this is the third one we've talked about, but second category is consistency challenges, right? Like I said in the opener, I'm going to be brief on this because we're going to have a whole conversation about this because I think it is so important. Okay. Okay. But what I want to say is it's really hard as a yoga teacher in the modern era to be consistent in the sequencing structure, focus, and themes that you are working with because you will almost inevitably internalize a ton of pressure coming from no one other than yourself to be new and different and novel. And being new and different and novel is good, but being new and different and novel is not the most important component of being a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I give the example all the time. Let's go back to a musical instrument, right? Let's imagine that I was a, a piano teacher, which is an irony there. I can't play it. Mm -hmm. But if I was a piano teacher and I wanted you to learn the piano, every time you came, I could not just give you a totally different song. I have to have some more consistency. I have to say, okay, every time you come, we're going to have some stuff that is the same. Every time you come, we're going to work on certain scales. No matter what, even when you become a high-level professional, you're going to still work and refine your scales. And then also every time you come, at least for a period of time, we're going to work on a song, maybe two songs or parts of a song. And we're going to keep doing that until you can actually do that well. And then we're going to build your repertoire, right? Then we're going to expand your knowledge. This is almost never done in yoga. It's almost never done. And the reason it's almost never done is because I think most of us are dead afraid of boring our students. We're dead afraid of boring our students. It's horrifying. I'm dead afraid of boring <laughs> my students. 
But so we think that we're going to bore our students by being repetitive. You know how we're actually going to bore our students? We're going to bore our students by not teaching them progressively enough that they expand their repertoire. Students are going to get bored not because you're doing the same thing, but because they're not continuing to learn and grow and expanding their self-knowledge and postural repertoire. Mm -hmm. The worst way to teach someone to build and to grow is to not be consistent. So the, the, or I'll say it another way, the best way to help someone build and expand their repertoire is to be more consistent, not less consistent. Mm -hmm. So what we think the students are getting bored of, us saying the same thing, that's not what they're getting bored of. They're getting bored of their own experience still not being able to do bakasana or blah, blah, blah. Students get bored when they don't feel progress anymore. And they are much less likely to feel progress if as the teacher, you're all over the place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. I have a lot to say about this, but it sounds like you want to have another conversation about it. So maybe you I'll Touch into it. Well, I mean, I think that the thing that comes to mind for me is just ballet and how growing up doing ballet, every time you take a ballet class, no matter who you go to, no matter where you go, you start at the bar and you go through a series of exercises and the teacher will alter the exercises slightly. Like, let's say once you get to the third exercise, they'll give you, it's hard to describe. Anyway, they might alter it slightly, but it's always like plies, tendus, fondues. You know, it's it's always the same order. There's a fondue? <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. I think, oh my God, unless I'm making that up at this point, but yeah. And so what that does for the student is what you're talking about. It's like, it, it's just, it's technique practice to build the foundation. But I think what, what might be helpful for teachers to remember is that most of us walk through our days really disconnected from our bodies. Yeah. So we need like 10 minutes or so to just actually drop into the body. And for most people, the easiest way to do that is to repeat something, right? It's it's that routine and that ritual. It gives you that neural, like that neuroception of like, oh, now it's time. It's my time to get quiet. Now it's time to be in my body. Now it's time to focus on my feet and my, how do my toes feel? And how do my hips feel? And, you know, so it's like, it, it's actually a technique in and of itself to drop from being neck up to bringing that awareness down into the body again and not having to like, focus on the choreography or focus on the rhythm or focus on the song, but just my, I know how to do a plie. Yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Like I'm just doing this thing that feels really good in my body. And you build that muscle memory up, right? This is something I've been thinking a lot about is the relationship between novelty and mastery. Okay. So when something is new, it's novel. When you've done that thing in an ordinate amount of times to the best of your ability and execution, that's mastery, right? So, but there's a lot of distance between novelty and mastery, and we need both. Mm. You know, we need both. And so what I often think about is I want to teach things that are new and different and novel and interesting to my students, but then I want to teach them consistently enough that there's mastery of those things. Mm -hmm. Because at its root in this discipline, we're looking to build skills, whether it's the broad skill of mindfulness, whether it's the broad skill of self-realization, whether it's the postural skill of a backbend or any of those things, 
in order to build the skill, you have to have that thing introduced, but then you actually need to repeat it enough that it becomes embodied, that it becomes known, and then it becomes known out of context, right? So what you're describing, similar to me in sport, which is in practice, you repeat the thing enough, 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 so that in practice, that thing that was novel, now you have a relative mastery of. So when you go to play the sport or when you go to perform the dance, mm -hmm. it's there. It's second nature. But and and I would and that seems like a very material process, but I would actually make the same argument for yoga. Is that what do we call yoga? We call it a practice. Mm -hmm. And when do we say it matters? Off the mat. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, I don't want me to drive too much of a parallel here, but if I want to learn how to be grounded and focused and tenacious under stress in my life, then I might as well learn that by learning how to do bakasana. I might as well learn that by building my urdhvadanyarasana. So these are real skills. This is a real subject, not just like an hour where we hope we feel better, although it's got to be that too, but mm -hmm. it's a real subject. And in order to develop in that subject and be able to go from practice to execution in life, man, you better have more than one shot. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. You yes. better have more than one shot, mm -hmm. right? The other kind of tiny thing that I want to tease into, and then we'll talk more about it next week, is that I think part of the challenge is that we don't we don't have a model for this. And I'm going to give us a model next week, okay? Because the two most common models that we have in yoga sequencing these days represent two completely different poles. One is the set sequence that never changes. And the other is every class is always different. Everything is always random. Those are really the two things that we will really see. If everyone takes a step back and you see like, oh, well, there are set sequence disciplines. We've talked about one, Ashtanga, Bikram, Hot Yoga, Baptiste, there's all sorts of things. Now, those work really well for many people. And if they work really well for you as a student and teacher, awesome. The other poll is pretty much every class or every week is mostly different, right? And nothing's ever the same. There's no continuity. Even the playlist is different, blah, blah, blah that might work really well for you as a student. That might work really well for you as a teacher. There's no inherent, this is a bad thing idea with either of those poles, but the vast majority of people are somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. There's somewhere in the middle where they would benefit, like they get a little bit bored and they stop developing with everything always being the same. And yet, they don't really quite learn and grow and increase their depth when everything is always different. Like there is a middle ground. This is what I'm going to talk about next week. There is a middle ground. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's one of the big challenges. We just don't have that as a model of understanding how we can go from novelty to mastery and then move on. Go from novelty to mastery and then move on. Final thing, totally related, student turnover. We've mm -hmm. already talked about it. Mm -hmm. Student turnover is awful. <laughs> and yet, it's natural. It's natural. It's completely natural and to be expected. And when I'm crying myself to sleep at night, 
one of the many things that I'm telling myself to try to stop the sobbing is the students that weren't in class today is not just because of you. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, Lord. But you know what I mean? We, we always like, put ourselves at the center of the story. We always put ourselves at the center <laughs> of the story, right? So here's the deal, everyone. A lot of people are coming to your class because that's the time that works for them. It's yeah. the time that works for them. It's yeah. the location that works for them. And they like your class. And their experience of yoga in your class is good. And they're also and, not in a lifetime commitment with you. Totally. There are very few things or people in your life that you stay connected to forever. Totally. So you serve them for a time and then perhaps you stop serving them. And then perhaps they come back and perhaps they don't. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so the, so the flip side of that is the students that are coming consistently, you are definitely one of the reasons, but there's a lot of other reasons those students are coming to that class consistently, I promise. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when students leave, majority of situations when a student doesn't come back or they leave, it's because of something in their life. Mm -hmm. It's not because of you. Mm -hmm. It's not something that you failed to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it just wasn't a fit. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they just, I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but they just they just outgrew you or they, they, got, they got what they needed yeah. from that exchange. You served them for that time. They yeah. learned what they needed to learn. Yeah. They're ready to learn something in a slightly different way or from a slightly different voice or whatever it is. Yes. But the bottom line and the reason I bring this up is let's assume all of their things are equal, meaning... This person still is interested in yoga. This person's yoga is still working in their life. They can still afford it. They're, they, they still want to come to class. Are they more likely to continue coming to your class if they are continuing over time to develop their skills and develop their what they perceive as progress in their practice or if they are not? It's obvious. Yeah, They are much more likely to continue to come if they are continuing to progress and develop what they identify as their skills in yoga, I guarantee it. What is a more effective pathway towards helping people progress? Being less consistent or more consistent? It's obvious. Mm -hmm. It's more consistent. Every yoga teacher has had some massive issue that has happened in their life. And they didn't know it was a massive issue at that, this point. Okay, but almost every yoga teacher on the planet has had someone come up to them and say this, oh my God, I love your class because it's different every single time. Hmm. Oh my God, I love your class because it's different every single week, hmm. right? And then guess what? You were so in need for a compliment on that day, you internalized it and you thought, that's why everyone is coming. Hmm. I can't ever change this. This is such positive feedback. These people are coming mm -hmm. because so-and-so told me. And guess what? So-and-so has only been to your class six times and they're not coming back tomorrow or ever again. But they gave you that compliment and it was real. But now you get locked in. We all get, we all stereotype ourselves. And we think like, oh, this is why so-and-so is coming because it's always got to be, it's always got to be this way. So my point on this is there are many ways to be more consistent and help your students continue to develop and make progress over time 
without boring them to tears and without feeling like every class always has to be the same forever and always, Mm -hmm. right? And so all of those things, from the physical things to those physical imbalances to not having comprehensive sequencing education early on to the relationship between turnover and lack of consistency, all of these are they are skills that we can shore up. Mm-hmm. Right. The bottom line is I'm willing to bet most people don't need to make radical wholesale challenges or mm-hmm. radical wholesale changes in what they're already doing. You just start to identify, you just, this is a very Patanjali based thing, right? You just identify the challenges. You identify the obstacles. You don't pretend they're not there and try to find some like random science study saying vinyasa yoga is the best and there's nothing wrong with it. You say, look, these are pretty obvious, these some minor tweaks that I could improve upon. And um, it's time to start slowly plugging away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. Uh, I think that's really helpful. And not to be too obvious, but I mean, it, it sounds like these are all things that you address in the yeah, they're all things that, that I address and they're implicit outcomes Okay, that I'm always trying to help people improve. You know, the kinds of mistakes that you are most interested in help helping other people fix, they're probably the mistakes that you've started to fix on your, on your own. Right. And that's why I said at the onset of this, like, man, I am so much clearer and more comprehensive and balanced in what I do now than what I used to do as a function of time and experience. Right, right. And God willing, in 20 years, I'll look back on this day and think, man, I'm much more clear and much more evolved than I was. I might not be more open to astrology or who knows, maybe I'll be in like, maybe I'll be Susanna's like intern. God willing, in 20 years, you're going to be- Retired. Wearing a sweatband. Yeah. In your bathrobe in the morning, walking your chihuahua, yelling at everybody. I mean, do and I have to wait 20 years? It I... sounds like it's exactly <laughs> about 20 minutes. Yeah. All right. More, more, more visioning uh, 20 years from now next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here, Jason. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, I will put show notes, including a link to the podcast Susanna and I did together a couple years ago at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 237. And I'll also include a link to register for Jason's sequencing program, which you can go to yourself at jasonyoga.com slash sequencing. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for sharing it. If you enjoy the podcast, it's, it's super helpful every time you share it on social media or send it to your friend or however you do you. But thanks so much as always for listening. And until next week, enjoy your practice.